Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's weekly On Leadership series. My name is Scott Miller and I serve as your ongoing host and interviewer. Today is indeed a special day because our parents had twins. Now our parents were actually Richard Simmons and Richard Branson. I won't tell you who was which parent, but my twin fraternal brother, Chris McChesney, is here on set today. I used to be able to compete with you for this kind of nonsense, and you have left me far behind. People will ask us, oh is this gosh. energy real? It's real. Unfortunately, It yes. is, it is. Yes. Our energy could uh, probably fuel a rocket ship, right? Which Branson might like. Yeah, they don't normally let us in the same room together, <laughs> so don't. this is a little bit But uh, hang on well. for the ride today. So only, honestly, a true delight today to have Chris McChesney, who is Franklin Covey's global practice leader, which means he's our expert on the topic of execution. He also is the lead author, co-author of one of our best-selling books, The Four Disciplines of Execution, which, congratulations, has now sold over 500,000 copies. I'm very happy. We, all, we have um, authors in every week here, sometimes virtually, sometimes live, yep. but it's rare to have an author who's sold you know, a half million copies. That's a lot of reads, Chris. Thank you. Congratulations Thank you. to you. Thank you. Tell us a bit about your journey here. I'd love to know, kind of not here to the studio, yeah. but how do you think this book has done so well? What was the process of writing it? What was the genesis of birthing this book, I guess maybe close to seven plus years ago? 28 years ago, when I started and I was with Dr. Covey in his office, uh, one of the things that became clear was he had a decade of experiences and stories before he wrote The Seven Habits. Hmm. And we used that as a blueprint. So the stories started in 2002, 2003. We had 2,000 implementations under our belt wow. by the time the book was written in 2012. And it was a, it was a process of condensing and, and, and really gleaning the key ideas as opposed to trying to expand an idea into a book. And that example, I, I think, was the, mm -hmm. was the most important aspect of this work. Because the book really is a collection of client successes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. some we, challenges. We had, we had a, a shell of what the four disciplines were about back in 2002, 2003. It was very different by the time we wrote the book in 2012. I like to quote Jeff Colvin, who was one of the editors at Fortune, who wrote the book Talents Overrated. Oh, yeah. And he talks a lot about this concept of 10,000 hours, that right. if you dedicate 10,000 hours, Tiger Woods and Andre Agassi and you know, others, that they become experts in their field. Well, like them, you probably have a couple hundred thousand hours of nearly 30 years, you know, the last 15 or so, almost solely dedicated to this one topic. You don't teach a lot of concepts around the seven habits and around you know, our leadership content, you know it well, but this has been your professional obsession for you know, 15, nearly 20 years. Yeah, and with the ADHD that I have. Um, just you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> to clarify, it, just him. It's a little bit of denial here, folks. Uh, it is not just me, wow. Um, the book is dedicated to Jim Stewart, who was this yeah. total quality right. Deming Duran guru, who really, he and Sean created the foundation for this. Um, and then me and a whole bunch of other people got on board. Right. And there's been, there's been closer to 30 people. I mean, next to Seven Habits, our organization has put more energy right. into this topic than any other single topic. Our chairman, Bob Whitman, was involved. Catherine Nelson, our practice leader. I mean, right, yeah. Ram Sharan That's and right. Bob Whitman early right. on right. really got this thing pointed in the right direction. So this is a cast of thousands that went into this. So this has been your passion professionally. You have been speaking and sort of evangelizing this around the world for the better part of 10 years. You're probably Franklin Covey's most booked keynote speaker next to Stephen M. R. Covey, Dr. Covey's oldest son. And I've watched you around the nation. You talk a lot about the, why executions break down, why organizations break down execution. What are the biggest challenges? I, I hear that 
people execute well in a crisis or an emergency yeah, or overnight, yep. but what are the reasons why it breaks down so consistently with clients? Well, there were a bunch of reasons when we started out. <laughs> what it looked like, what it really boiled down to is there is a single human dynamic that is really the reason why leaders are gonna struggle, everybody, why, why people watching this are struggling right now. And it's this one issue that in the moment, a human being will default to something urgent over something important. That one dynamic is at the heart of this problem. Because? Because the strategy is never as urgent as the day job, mm -hmm. ever. Whatever priority you're pushing, whatever, whatever noble change you're trying to make, whatever, no matter how much people agree with it, no matter how much they like it, you have to clear the hurdle of the fact that whatever they're doing with their day job, whatever their day job is, that is always more urgent. It's also more rewarding probably in, too, in right? In the moment, yeah. Right. A little, right. little dopamine trigger, right. I got something right. done. It's a different type of human discipline required to act on non-urgent activities. And by the way, you gave it away in your question. You said, a lot of, and I hear this, a lot of organizations ex execute well in a crisis. Mm -hmm. That's because in the crisis, the strategy becomes urgent. Hmm. It's the all-consuming yeah, focus. It, it actually, for that rare moment, the strategy is a lot of the strategic initiatives will actually trump the day job on an urgency scale. But, but you, can, you can tie everything back. And so by about 2004, this thing started to turn away from some general execution approach to a very sing, simple, single question of how do you execute in the face mm -hmm. of overwhelming distractions? Mm -hmm. And that's a- That's the premise. Yeah, and yeah. It's, it's different than every other goal methodology approach out there. We're not trying to take and, and help you execute your whole business model. Mm. We're trying to help you break through a strategic barrier in the face of distractions. It's a, it's a different and kind approach. Walk us through briefly what the four disciplines are. For those who haven't read the book yet or, or yeah. listened to an audio, give us a primer. Yeah. We love numbers at Franklin Covey. Yeah. And you picked four for it's a reason. It's always been my favorite number as a Has kid. It? Is it? I was the fourth child in my family. There's four other kids besides me. I passed my driver's test on the fourth time on a four speed. Uh -huh. And I, I, I had this affinity for the number four, but it had nothing to do with why there's four disciplines. But you passed your driver's test on the fourth time. No, no, we're going live. We're live, baby. Yeah, they were betting on it at school. Yeah. It was a big uh, deal by the time I finally passed. Which should give everyone a great deal of confidence in my in ability to help them yeah. execute yeah. in particular. Walk us through. All right. There's four principles. And, and we are, if we're nothing else as an organization, Right. We're focused on principles. That's it. It's, right. Stephen Covey said best practices are a dime a dozen, mm -hmm. right? Principles are everything. This thing's rooted in four principles. Focus, leverage, engagement, and accountability. Okay, now that set in its application we call disciplines, and the best way to think of them is as a treatment you apply to something that isn't gonna make it. It's really important, and it's like, it's really funny when you ask leaders this, you say, you say what lives at the intersection of really important and it ain't gonna happen? Which should be a stupid question, except they all have an answer. And you see the looks, you see them just go, oh, they're like, they're like changing their seats, they'll just go, oh. Like, it, it hits them, right? What's, what's at the intersection of really important and if I'm honest with myself, this thing ain't happening. That is how you know that's what these disciplines and they're a treatment for that. Okay, so and then it just in a really tight nutshell, the first one is all about narrowing the focus. We call it focus on the wildly important. It's really about the practice of targeting. It's very hard to execute on a concept. 
And wow, do we have to beat people up on this. Focus on the wildly important. Yeah. And you have a name for this. You have an acronym for this. WIG, wildly important right. goal, which is this construct of taking a conceptual idea that the leader wants to execute and putting it in the form of a starting line, finish line, and deadline. Right. And in an organizational setting, it, it usually starts off as a single metric and then it cascades to the fewest number of executable targets at the front line. That's discipline that's one is targeting. Yeah. Discipline two is then you sort of go into the cells of the teams and you say, where's the leverage? Now that revolves around what we call lead measures. The second discipline is act on lead measures. Mm. Leading measures are not just predictive of the outcome. Everybody gets that. They're also something that the team can influence. This is so critical from a leadership perspective because if I can't influence it, I don't think I'm playing a winnable game. And so you start to have the engagement juices start to flow just from constructing that, taking that strategic bottleneck, breaking it down to single targets at the team level. Second discipline is what can we move? I can't influence weight loss, but I can influence how many calories I eat, how many calories I burn. That's when people get the idea, right? My how can I behave differently to get a different result? Yes, I can, I can act on ca- calories consumed. I right. can't act right. on calories burned. Lag right. measures, we call them oh crap measures. Hmm. The wildly important goal is a lag measure. Mm-hmm. If, if, if you feel like luck is playing a role in your career, mm-hmm. <laughs> you are acting on lag right. data. Mm-hmm. All right, now though, that's great, but if that's all you do, this thing's gone in three days. The amnesia-inducing effects of the day job, mm-hmm. we call it the whirlwind, mm-hmm. are intense. The, the third- The gravitational is, pull back to that is, is They might be so excited. They're like, you're a great boss. This is a great guy. I love this, right? I'm gonna forget everything in three days, chief. See you around, man, right? You gotta turn it into a game. Yeah. Now we don't actually call, we say compelling scoreboard. So discipline three is? Create a compelling score. Create a compelling scoreboard. Yeah, it's, it's basically taking the bet you made in discipline one. The output and the input and turning it into what looks like a game. And games have lead, shots on goal, goals, down in distance, score, yeah. right? There's always this lead-lag relationship. And, and they kind of care about the organization's strategic mm. objective. Mm-hmm. They really care about the game they can influence. Right. If you can make it go live, yeah. here's the, what we're looking for. Are the players keeping score? We know the coach is keeping score. Are the players keeping score? If that dynamic is in place, you're gonna see a whole lot of other leadership dynamics, engagement dynamics start to kick in. It's the psychology of engagement at the most front player's level. And there's a ton of research that goes back to the 60s by a guy named Frederick Hertzberg. If your readers are listening and maybe we can get a graphic up, there's an HBR article, May 2011, called The Power of Small Wins. Mm. And it's the psychological backbone and and data behind why this very pragmatic, results-oriented thing actually spikes engagement. When we do our case studies, we'll put the camera in somebody's face to talk about their results, and no matter how much we want them to focus on the, they talk about engagement. Hmm. And and, and we didn't see that, we weren't smart. This is what we call our happy accident. So discipline three is, sorry, I'm off. Discipline three is create the compelling scoreboard. Can you take that strategic bottleneck and turn it into something that feels like a winnable game? Discipline four is how you play the game. And this is where you break the urgency trap. And so every member of Hmm. the team, each team that owns a scoreboard, every member of that team's gotta make a couple of commitments that would otherwise never be urgent. 
To create a cadence. Yeah, to, and it's, yeah. It's, this, it's this cadence of accountability. The thing you're gonna focus on this week that's gonna move that scoreboard, right? Sometimes they're, sometimes they're clever, and we have wonderful stories. Uh, mm. You know, necessity's the mother of invention, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes they're clever, sometimes they're basic. They're the kinds of things you would never put in a strategic plan because you would never know them. Mm. They're never urgent on their own. But once they make the commitment to the team, and we, we, always hear, we always hear people say, I was not gonna walk into that meeting and not have that commitment done, and it ain't the boss. At first, it's the boss. Within a couple of weeks, it becomes the peers. Nobody likes to disappoint their boss. So true. But they get over it, right? Mm. They'll do anything not to disappoint a peer. Mm-hmm. Once that scoreboard tribe, means something, right? yeah, yeah, that little tribe, yeah. they, they won't do it. And, and you start to establish this integrity. We did a research project recently with production and operations environments. And we collected a bunch of data. They were using the disciplines in ways we hadn't anticipated. And Which is some of how our best work comes from clients innovating on our content. We learn new insights about it. Consultant. Yeah. <laughs> Pirate. <laughs> yeah, which is really, I gotta say 90% of this is simply trial and error learning from really good Decades. intuitive leaders. Right. But, but one of the things that was so fascinating is we would say to these, we had five accounts, two of which had billion dollar ROIs over about a five, six year period of time. And they'd just taken this methodology to another level. What industries? Um, uh, uh, it, was, it was energy, it was oil and gas, mm. it, was, it was manufacturing. Uh, there was a giant IT division within, mm. uh, within one of the country's biggest cable companies. Mm. So it was just different types yeah. of groups, but yeah. all of them had the common sort of operations, environment, scenario. Every time we would hit them with our hypothesis of why it worked, every one of them would come back and said, don't forget accountability. They said, when we started, we didn't even care if the commitments moved the needle. Hmm. We just wanted to see, and it was a theme across all of them that had been successful with this. Covey used to talk about integrity, making and keeping a promise Mm -hmm. as the foundation for personal effectiveness. And we started to have this epiphany that, you know, maybe organizational effectiveness, even though it's the last discipline, Will the people on the team make and keep a promise? They said that was more important than getting the leads right, Uh, than getting the lags right, and that once they had that cadence of integrity, Mm -hmm. we call it cadence of accountability, Mm -hmm. the commitments are coming from the people, they're not being Mm -hmm. pushed down on. Mm -hmm. Then everything else started to move. And we had, that's not the sexiest part of our content, but that's, a, our that's a differentiator from, say, another process of goal cascading and such. Yeah. This is the, it's a pull. the accountability within the system, within yeah. the team. Yeah. I'm really glad you said that. Um, people, when they first look at this, I think they sort of view it as a way to push a strategy on an organization, right. and it's right. really not. Right. It may have started that I way. I hear that. Yeah. It's a pull. The teams determine the wig that's going to move the big wig. The, the actual team members determine the lead measures. The individuals determine the commitments they're going to make. They, they, they have to play the game, and the targets are aligned, but it is very much a pull. Yeah. You spoke about engagement. We know at Franklin Covey, through, our, in, through some of our own research and the introduction of our new leadership course, The Four Central Rules of Leadership, yep. that it's not true that leaders drive engagement. It sounds good on paper, but leaders don't drive engagement. What leaders do do, however, is create conditions of engagement, high or low, so that people then can choose their level of engagement. Talk about how execution relates to setting the conditions for people to choose 
a higher level of engagement. All right, I'm gonna go, what's gonna feel a little off script, but I've been, I've been thinking yeah. about this this week. Do you remember the tomato plant exercise from principle-centered leadership? You gotta go way back. 1980. Stephen Covey yeah. used to do this. He'd get a group of executives in the room and he'd get them into tables and it almost started to feel like a competition. And he'd say, give me your list for creating a world-class tomato. We're gonna to see how creative you guys are. So for, for 10, 15 minutes, he would milk them for all the things they were gonna to do to create a world-class tomato. Uh, stocks and greenhouses and chemicals and fertilizer. And they'd try and outdo themselves on these lists. Then he'd let them all kind of play back what they had. And then he'd ask them one question. And it would change the whole tone of the meeting. He would say, can you guarantee the growth of the tomato? And they'd all sort of look at each other and they'd all go, no. And he'd say, why not? And they would give him the answer. And the answer was, because the life is in the seed. Hmm. And his point was, as a leader, your job, it's exactly what you just said, Scott, your job is to create the conditions for engagement. You are not God, mm -hmm. right? You, can, you can't put in what God left out. Hmm. You are the gardener. And this, I thought, was the most beautiful, sometimes it was the most, it was the most profound impact that these type A hard-driving executives would take. They could be type A around creating the conditions. And this is what we found by accident. I swear to you, you know this, we weren't clever. <laughs> Enough. We started, no, we weren't at all. Like, like Franklin Covey's got all this great stuff that inspires engagement. And we were, the, we were the business side of the Franklin Covey continuum. But we started to see these spikes in engagement. And we started to recognize it wasn't when you launched the disciplines. It was the first time that the lead measure started to move the lag. Hmm. And we said, well, what's that indicative of? They're winning. So you go back to Frederick Hertzberg in the 60s, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? The, he called it the progress principle. The number one driver of morale and engagement is whether a person feels they're winning at something that matters. And so we ask leaders this question. Do the people who work for you feel like they are playing a winnable game. They don't have to be winning on everything. They could be getting their butts kicked on 80% of what's going on, but somewhere in there, they have to have something they can win at. Futility is the enemy of the human soul. You read Frankel's work, Man's Search for Meaning. The thing that scared him more than death, more than losing his family, was that his life wasn't going to matter. Mm -hmm. That book teaches that the human soul the of meaning. has an allergic reaction. Yeah. That's right. Chris, stop there a second. I, I gotta think it's inherently challenging because most senior leaders got to their positions by being extraordinary uh, examples of accomplishment. And therefore, in some cases, if you win, you lose. Meaning, as a leader, if you accomplish a goal, you more. probably set it too low. Therefore, you're a failure. Do you find that in organizations with high-performing leaders that they don't celebrate enough or that if their team does feel like they're leading or winning, that they need to set the goal just out of reach or goals that are stretch goals? What's, that? What's been your experience around that? We did not have a way to respond to that for about 10 years. Like people would say the question, do we, you asked, you had a bunch of questions in there, but I'm gonna break this down. Do we stretch them? Like, do we, do we aim for the stars? And if we hit the right. moon, is that good? Because right. there's a whole leadership style that sort mm -hmm. of shows up around that. Right. Right. Um, I, I will tell you, I'm gonna say two things are gonna sound a little contrary. Leaders who are relentless win. Leaders who like to pat themselves on the back and look in the rearview mirror and talk about their results, 
they don't seem to have the same track record. The leaders that we see win, they're sort of eyes forward predators. They're like, that was great, but what's the next thing? It's not good. I mean, you, you look at Wegmans. They're amazing. They were the number two most respected company in America next to Google and the number two best place, sorry, next to Amazon mm. and number two best place to work in America uh, next to Number two best place to work, I'm gonna get this right, next to Amazon, number two most respected, next to Google, mm -hmm. and they're a regional grocery store. Right, right. They're amazing. They're never satisfied. And what they tell themselves is, though, they go, they're always like, we gotta stop and celebrate. They always have to remind yeah. themselves if this really They're is doing both. They're setting stretch goals that are relentlessly looking forward, but they're also yeah. not missing the need to celebrate and create a culture where people feel like they're winning. Right, now I'm it's gonna talk both. out of the other side of my mouth. So that mindset, that relentless, I know we're dominating our competitors, you, you know, we're friends with the people at Chick-fil-A and Tim and, yeah, right. and that group, right. and they're the same way. It's, they're, they're, they've got, everybody's gone in the rearview mirror. They can't even see the competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, they'd hate it if they knew us saying that, but they can't. And they're, and they're pushing harder than anybody for this excellence. Here's the other part of it, though. If you stretch them too far, they check out. We didn't know this 10 years ago. But we're starting to see this pattern that even though the leader has got to be relentless, you can lose your followers. The targets don't set goals for the stars to hit the moon. What we find is when we set wigs, they have to be meaningful. And they've got to be directionally right. But if you put them too far out, if the team feels like they'll, they're behind, they will disengage fast. Mm -hmm. This idea of if, if it, the minute it doesn't feel like a winnable game, this leader has to balance this yin and yeah, yang. I got to be right. relentless, right. but the minute the team feels like if I'm off on my own with this vision and the rest of them are rolling their eyes, back I am the day dead. Yeah. Right? They go back to that's right. They retreat right. right back to the urgency and the day right. job, and they go on defense. Yeah, Chris. So many questions. I've Sorry. also heard you say that if you look at the um, the breadth of the engagements with clients. A disproportionate number of them come from leaders who are new to their position, first 40 days, first 100 days in, that oftentimes the four disciplines is a way for leaders new to their role, divisional lead or division president or such, yeah. to accomplish something big and important early on as a big win. Talk about the correlation between yeah, they're not always new that. to leadership, but you're position, absolutely right? Right. right. They've been in a position, and it's not right away, right away. It's usually after that three to four months where the dust settles okay. and they've got, their, they've got their eye, and then that strategic bottleneck shows up, and they know, and they've got a fresh set of eyes. They know we're fundamentally stuck in a, in a groove unless we get our first-year salespeople to, to pay for themselves after one year. Yeah unless we reduce client churn. It's not the big EBITDA, it's, it's small targets with big splashes. Hmm. And you're right, they're in this position and they've got fresh eyes. And their credibility is dependent on accomplishing what they said they're gonna do, yep. winning the hearts of their people. Yep, and, yeah. and you're right, that is, a, that is a very rich, fertile area. And, and with the leader, there tends to be two, there tends to be an interesting blend of Hubris and humility. Mm. Makes sense. The hubris yeah. is we can do something no one ever has done around mm -hmm. here. The humility is um, I'm gonna adhere to principles. Mm. I'm not gonna do this on the power of my own personality or strength. I'm gonna, I'm gonna when, when Mike Stengel, who was the general manager of the Marriott Marquis in Times Square, the most profitable Marriott mm -hmm. in the world, and they were piloting this, um, Mike 
was in China watching the Olympics. He was calling in at 2.30 in the morning to a wig session hmm. with a bunch of opera. He was getting up, he was on vacation in China at the Olympics, getting up at 2.30 in the morning to be on a call. That's humility. Hmm. To say, look, if, if you've got to do it, I've got to do it. And commitment and engagement and, commitment. and, and modeling what he wants all of his other leaders to do, right? If it's, if it's not too good for him, it's not too good for them. Arguably the best married, on the, married in the world had that year the highest guest sat, events sat, profitability, and top line revenue in the 20-year history of the hotel. Wow by nailing a couple of yeah. bottlenecks. Chris, what have you learned? What have you learned from clients that are sort of surprise discoveries about how the process has worked or things you've had to refine as you've now onto your probably, you know, 20th, 1,000th yeah. engagement? The big one is the commitment um, backlash. That once, if you can hold course long enough to create the winnable game, you get a wind at your back. There's a surge of engagement hmm. with people. When, when does that come? <sighs> Longer than you want. Second month. I see. Maybe okay. there's starting to be some predictability. And that first month, the leader's got to carry it. That, but that second month. Is it month, breakdown at the same time? It well, goes one or two if ways? The leader, if the leader can't stay with, these are not the four good ideas of execution. They are disciplines. They don't okay. give you discipline. They require it. Okay. If the leader can stay with that, mm -hmm. you get this, and you, and you do it as a pull, not a push. You get this wind of engagement at your back when people feel they're winning. That's the big surprise. I'm guessing you probably counsel leaders to say, here's what you need to do to persevere and make sure you're launching this properly. You can't just launch it and move on to your, you have to be the yeah. leader of it. Yeah, you don't get to delegate execution. Very good, that's the big, that's the first surprise. Here's the second surprise. You may have 12 elements that affect an outcome. And a leader can see gaps in all 12 elements and it's almost impossible for them not to want to attack all mm. and optimize mm. all 12 mm. elements because they kind of know how to do it. Mm. I struggle with this on a big scale. Can we keep this from our CEO? No, too late, keep going, no. I once had someone tell me a very wise statement. Um, you think they don't know, <laughs> no. they do. <laughs> so you guys have been on to this. Exposed. You knew this. You saw this. But it relates to me too. All right, so go back to this. I got one dynamic. I can see 12 factors that hit the one dynamic. I think I got to hit all 12, huh. and I don't. We've been amazed, surprised that you nail one of those 12 dynamics. It doesn't get lost. It doesn't get watered down. It has a multiplying effect. If you hit the dynamic, even if you didn't pick the biggest bottleneck, that you can hit significantly hit one component. This is where the challenge of narrowing the focus is so difficult, right? You have to maintain all 12, but if you can hit one, you can move. That's the first, yeah, that's the second. The first one is engagement and execution are weirdly attached. We think, hey, let's get good morale so we can get great results. Yeah, kind of, it never works that way though. Mm. It always works the other direction. That, that, that experience when we were winning felt so great. I've heard you talk and write, and you have seen quotes from you where you're passionate around that there's no shortage of good ideas. Mm -hmm. And that a leader's, you know, one of the crucial roles of a leader is to say no, is to resist the temptation of churning out more ideas to confuse your people. Talk about what you've learned around that. I, this I, is insightful. I know, because it's, it's my number one challenge. In, in, in this country in particular, but I think everywhere, good idea means we're doing it. You're paid to innovate, you're yeah, paid to progress. And right. Think it, up new stuff. But you go back and look at Apple. 
um, and Jobs and, and Cook at some of the early quotes, they did not consider themselves an innovative company. It's as ironic, the word they used was focused. And what they bragged about were not their good ideas. What they bragged about was the good ideas they said no to. And people think when you're saying no to good ideas, you're killing innovation. But you look back you're at what bringing, Apple you're did. You're bringing focus on you're what you've identified are your must-do priorities. That's right. You're actually just the opposite. You actually, it's about putting the enormous amount of energy behind the ones you do choose. And this is a gut check. It's, when we're talking about it, it sounds good. Yeah, wait till you try it. Wait till there's a group of people sitting around your desk going, come on, boss. It's a good idea, man. Chris, you've sold a half million books. But you don't, I don't have, know that I do. Well, you're, you and the My team. name is on a book <laughs> that sold a hey, half a that's million. That's the hubris and humility there. Yeah. Um, your book has sold Reality. a half million copies, but you don't have a half million engagements going on. You have a lot. What, what happens when someone buys the book and they start to implement it? Where does it succeed or break down and they choose to come in and hire the team yeah, to help them make great. it By the way, you'll be, I, didn't, you don't, I don't know if you know this or not. On our online portal, we have 200,000 teams. Wow. So there may be a half a million there users, close, people yeah. that never bought yeah, the book. Wow. And those right. are just the, those 200,000, those are just the ones we know about. Right. That Some of them are part of big companies, some are just little independent teams, but they're all using the online portal, and no. we know that's not everybody that's using. Right. right. They're not all in our portal, obviously. But you made a good point. There are certain things they'll try in the book. Individual team leaders have pretty good luck getting us off the ground yeah. if they're dedicated. Because you've made it, you made some of the concepts simple, right? Yeah. The, how to form a goal it has to from be. X to Y by Z and that right, by right. when and such. Yeah. yeah. But but where they struggle is when you go up a level and they there's certain things that where a leadership team who's not at the front line, where there's a couple of levels between you and the front line, because we didn't really write the book to that audience. And that's where we see, um, they, for instance, they won't take discipline one far enough. They'll go to discipline two before they've really broken the wings down is a, is a common problem. Or they won't even take the methodology down to the front line. They'll stop at a leadership level where you're not touch, touching the customer. So there's a couple of places, mm -hmm. but what's ironic is that's usually when people but they're call crucial. us. Yeah. yeah, and they are yeah. crucial. Yeah. Um, and, and we don't want people to get frustrated because the principles, they're universal. We didn't invent them. They work and they work every time. Yeah. Final couple of minutes here. Okay. I, I want to change gears. You've mentioned Dr. Covey a couple of times. You've been in this firm for 30 years almost. You shadowed Dr. Covey for the first decade or so of your career. You knew him very well. I know he was a hero of yours. What are some things you learned from him? Wow. Maybe recount some of the top three or four things that have impacted not just your own life, but your work with clients. Um, if you, my wife and I have seven children. And, um, and, and it's one of the things I'm, life I'm most proud of. Uh, and most frustrated by it. <laughs> that's why I travel. <laughs> Please um, book him so we can stay married and <laughs> be a good dad. They're killing me. Uh, the, uh, she will say, if you ask her, um, that being exposed to seven habits um, our first year of marriage changed everything. Both of us had some intergenerational patterns that we mm. had to break. Mm. And so it's, it's, very, it's very close to the heart. Uh, Stephen Covey used to say, if you argue for your weaknesses, they are yours. Mm. Um, uh, his love of universal principles, that, that the lighthouse, right? That we are not in charge. That he here. didn't invent. Right. And Many he times he named clear. them. He was but... very clear about that. Um, I think the return to the character ethic. I've got daughters that are at the age where they're looking to future husbands. And, and what they understand about character because of Stephen Covey 
Uh, it's very personal to me. The biggest one, though, and the one that brought me to this company, um, was what he taught about stimulus and response. Share it. Explain As it to a us. very hyperactive mm -hmm. college student, I'd listen to sort of a bootleg audio of Stephen Covey. And this thing about, and, and I have a very mercurial personality, either very upset or very, very upset or very happy or something like this. That's it, named something in the clinical world. You know that. Yes. Right? yes. Okay, so like we won't by, say it on camera. Yeah, by something, <laughs> right? Um, and I remember vividly getting my head around this one idea. And Stevens used to say that all seven habits lived in the space between stimulus and response. Mm. And I remember the way 22-year-old version of Chris McChesney interpreted it was, am I controlling my environment or is my environment controlling me? And it was this little mantra that this hyperactive kid started mm. chanting to himself um, that got me through, uh, you know, those kind of struggling years and got me started on a good career and I, I pursued him but that was that one idea um, that he's taken you know put mm. back on the surface mm. around character and particularly not being a victim of our environment mm. um, is, is really the wise ones all say the same things yeah they right really I mean Victor Frankl yep. and Stephen Covey and Jim Collins I mean yeah. they all have these sort of girded principles. connection to principles yeah. and they name them different things yep. but they all at the end of the day mean the same. And they have predictable consequences. So what's next for you? The book is selling like wildfire still. It's number one in its category. It's the best-selling book ever on written yeah, on know. the topic of execution. What's next for you and the team of authors? Anything? Yeah, so um, um, Jim and I are really looking hard. Jim Healing, yeah, right. At this, um, at, at sort of the 2.0, particularly the leadership pieces that maybe we're missing from the first book. Okay. Okay, really. Thousands of implementations. Yeah, and again, it was stuff almost, we learned. And, like, yeah. how, is how has Marriott been able to, to, to maintain this for, for 10 years? How does Wegmans, you know, maintain, you know, a percent of commitments that's kept every week on a ridiculous level? Like, what have we learned from these leaders? So that's version two. The other thing is there's these other topics. Um, how does execution affect engagement? How does it affect mm. the, the, the whole way it's used around customer experience? It's so different than the way we thought it would be used. Um, how has it been applied in operations and productivity? So there's a, we think there's another book called The Execution Effect, hmm. which is, all right, if you understand the principles, how do you apply them in different areas? Because we've been a little surprised at the way the vaccine's been used. Hmm. So those are probably the I two things. I see two things. So an updated version of this that's Within a year, uber relevant a year and around half. new examples, yep. and then perhaps another one yet to be named, but you're kind of calling it the execution effect. Fact, I like yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, probably six, seven years from now. I see. Or at your speed, maybe two. <laughs> <laughs> so two books kind of in the works. Yeah. You spend most of your time around the world. I mean, I've seen the travel vouchers that, that, that show your schedule. You're crisscrossing the nation, speaking the World Business Forum, keynoting. You're spending most of your time, I believe, working with CEOs, boards of directors on strategy execution, and keynoting a lot. Tell us about that. Um, it's, it's really rewarding because the rank and file leadership of an organization relate to this. It's almost like oxygen. When you start talking about the frustration between the day job and the goals, it's, it's cathartic for them. And it's also very liberating for senior leadership because they see the reaction of their people mm -hmm. to the message and they become more bullish about going forward with the methodology. So yeah, along with enjoying it personally, yeah. it's really rewarding. And you get to meet some unbelievable leaders and you get to follow these strategy presentations. That's the and other thing. And you're fairly engaging. 
<laughs> to listen to you speak on stage, right? Fairly. They can take yeah. it for short yeah, right, periods right. of time. 35 minutes. About, yeah, about an hour, they, <laughs> okay. they're like, no more, make them go away. So if someone wants to take a next step, they're, they're a leader, they've yeah. got a, a, a big goal they want to accomplish, they're buying the book right now online or they bought the book. Yeah. How does someone engage with you? What's the first step someone can take? If you're in a leadership role, we, we walk people through three questions. That's all we do. Question number one, is this right for you right now? Okay. So we'll come out on our nickel for a couple of hours yep. and just talk to your leaders about it. Let them kick it around. They go one way or the other real fast. Go to the website? Or, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yep. and you go to the website, tag somebody yeah. from Franklin Covey, somebody from our practice. If you got a leadership team, we'll come out. Got First it. question, is it right for us? Second question, what are we going to aim it at? Because it may not always be the right timing That's for right. your organization. For a m- bunch yeah. of reasons. Right. Right? It, it, is there something at that intersection? Okay. Right? And that's the second question. Second question is, what do we aim it at? Okay. And then third question is, you know, how do we go about putting this thing in? Okay, great. 4dx.com? What's the website? Um, yeah, you, well, just go, on the, just go on the Franklin Covey website right. and go Click to an execution, execution and, yeah. and it'll take you right there. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the portal. Talk about the portal for just a minute, the community of users. Oh, you can do, oh, you could also do chrismcchesney.4dx.com. And, La-dee-da. And then, yeah. and then, yeah. and then yeah. did I approve that site? What? You have your own site? <laughs> your guys made it. <laughs> Shut he that down. He doesn't even know, he doesn't even know what his people are doing. Yeah. So anyways, but yeah. Wait, can, you, you managed to put your, your personal name and the book's site together in a web domain? It wasn't me. It's genius of you. It wasn't me. <laughs> that was hubris. <laughs> that was hubris. Talk about 4dx.com. Um, so... This is a set of tools. It's, it's everything the authors, Sean, Jim, myself, have learned. And it's, it's almost like TurboTax for this. So, mm. so it's, it's everything around discipline one on learning it, applying it, loading it into the portal, discipline two. It's, it's the whole methodology in, um, in video form tied to that portal where we have 200,000 teams. Mm. Got it. So it's... it's it is the application for this. And this is, by the way, this is what we try and do. We don't see ourselves as consultants or trainers. We're, we're just, we like to see people lock and load an execution system. Hmm. And that's what we sort of see our role as. Chris, so engaging. Richard raised you well. Tell him I said hello. I won't say which one. The Branson, right? <laughs> I don't know. It's a Richard Branson. Whichever. I think it was Branson. We'll have you back and go deeper into some of, the, some of the disciplines. I would love to. In the coming months. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for your time. Hey, thanks for joining. Uh, to uh, or at least one major personality on set today. Hope that you were able to digest some of Chris's really hard-earned and respected expertise. We'd love it if you're listening to this on a podcast. Keep in mind it comes out also in a subscription-based e-newsletter every week. And in the newsletter, there are both articles and tools you can download to actually help to implement some of the concepts we discuss every week. So hope you enjoyed our time. We'll see you back next week with a new guest. Thanks for joining us.